it says th that I'm live. Am I on? Yep. Praise the Lord. Things seem to be working. I want to welcome those joining us over uh, Facebook Live and uh, uh, the church YouTube uh, channel. Uh, Sabbath blessings to you. We're about to get started here this morning. and We want to thank you for joining us in our Pal Talk Church uh, this morning as we come together to praise the Lord, uh, to worship together, to learn from His Holy Word uh, what He has for us today. And before we get started, we want to have a word of prayer together. Uh, and uh, and so that the uh, Holy Spirit can guide us into the truth. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together here uh, by whatever means in order to fellowship together, to study together, to learn uh, more about thee. We, we come together on this Holy Sabbath day to keep it holy. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us so that we may do just that and bring glory to thy name. Father, we pray for those who can be with us here this morning, those who may still be traveling to houses of praise and worship, uh, that you will give them travel mercies. Father, we pray that you will surround each and every one of your faithful with holy angels that excel in strength, remove all evil, so that we may gain that spiritual rest on this holy day as well as a physical rest. We thank you so much for Jesus and all that he has done for us in dying on the cross and and his ministry for us in heaven now, preparing a people to meet him in peace. Now, Father, forgive us our sins and help us to be overcomers. Give me the words to speak this morning as we talk about lifting up the banner of Christ and what that means for us who live here at the end of time. We thank you so much for Jesus again, and we pray these things in his blessed name, for he is worthy to be praised. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, beloved, I don't think it's a stretch for me to say, uh, <laughs> or maybe maybe I should put it a different way. Uh, I, I think you will agree with me that we live in a world now that essentially is prepared to accept the mark of the beast. And, and so we must be praying without ceasing, as Paul says, to be able to stand for righteousness even more so today than we ever have before, though the majority of God's people will sadly choose to forsake it. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think it's just me, uh, but have you realized, have you seen the condition of the world today? Have you considered that good is now considered evil in our time, and evil is considered good? It seems to be the norm uh, each and every day. We see it in the news. We see it everywhere. All this evil, and it's, it's, it's spoken of as if it's something to, be, to aspire to. And like I said, it seems to be the norm now, it reminds me that we're getting very close to the time that even Enoch lived in, where it was evil all around. And, and surely, you know, the signs that our Savior spoke about in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 almost seem to be in the past, don't they? And so we, we have to look at where we are as individuals, as a people, the time that we're living in. And we need to be praying. We need to be praying for the latter rain to be poured out. Are you praying for the latter rain, friends? Are you praying that you and your family would be prepared for what's coming upon us, I believe, very shortly now? Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, he said, And take heed to yourselves, he said, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. So that that day, that day that is right upon us, friends, that day come upon you unawares, he says. For as a snare, isn't that interesting? For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. What is a snare? It's a trap, isn't it? It's something that grabs you, it holds you, it traps you, it catches you. Isn't that true? And he says that that day isn't like a, a snare, but it is coming to all those who are on the earth. We don't want to be trapped in that snare, do we? What does he tell us? How do we avoid the snare? Verse 36, 
He says, watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Friends, we are going to stand before Jesus one day. We either will be outside the walls of the new city or we will be among those who are inside. But we will stand before Jesus Christ. The question for us as individuals is, what is my condition right now? Will I be standing with Jesus or against him? And as I was contemplating the, the state of God's professed people uh, living today in regards to the sin issue, uh, what came, it kept coming up in my mind was how clever, truly clever our enemy is, the, the devil, how clever he is in using scriptures in such a way as to confuse the differences between truth and error. He can get us so confused at times, it seems, that we will, though professing to be Christians, we will, in fact, sometimes call truth error and error truth. Isn't that right? As Isaiah 5.20 says, remember that scripture? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, as we consider truth, the truth that is in Christ, and you've heard me say this on a number of occasions, those who, who know me, truth in Christ is progressive for us, not just as individuals, but as well it's progressive as well for God's church. And if we do not keep up with the truth, what will happen? Well, more than likely, we are going to be pulled in by that snare. We are going to fall into confusion. And ultimately, we will, if we continue in that direction, fall uh, um, into the woe that we saw there in Isaiah 520. It'll be upon our heads. All the while, and this is how the devil works and how how strong delusions are, we'll think that we're headed to the kingdom of God. And I believe this is where we are today, beloved. There are many Christians around the world that think they are spreading the truth, but are actually sharing the deception that evil is good and good is evil. I mean, if you think about it just for our country, the United States of America, uh, just how do you think that this country, once a Protestant beacon of religious liberty to the world, has gotten into the incredible cultural and political mess that it's in today? Something has changed. The big picture, my friends, is that people are being prepared by these poor, deceived souls to receive the mark of the Antichrist and not the seal of God. And one of the greatest problems I run into when discussing these kinds of things and, and, and errors with someone, uh, you know, who is professed to be a Christian, is that correct principles of Bible study are not being used. I can't say that enough. You see, if you, you understand the Bible study, the, the Bible principles of study correctly, it makes it easier to see the truth. If you don't use correct um, and I know that many of you have run into people like this. If you don't have correct biblical principles of study, it makes it easier to call truth error and error truth because the discernment's gone. Add to that a culture that declares truth to be whatever the person perceives it to be, well, then we have Babylon. We have confusion. And it's everywhere. And most people are being captured by Babylon because of this. And this problem of wresting the scriptures from their foundation can be clearly seen when one comes to understand the truth concerning what we've been studying for several, several weeks now, the sin issue. And, and friends, this is the issue. This is it. This is the issue, the sin, the sin problem, and how God deals with the sin problem. And, and this is the issue that must be understood right before getting to a subject, let's say, like uh, who and what the church is, which is also vitally important to understand. You see, friends, if we understand the sin issue in light of Bible truth, we'll be better able 
with the help of the Holy Spirit, to rightly divide the Word of God on any subject. For the subjects will be discerned through, you see, the prism of the light of God and His character in dealing with the sin issue. That's the ultimate issue right now. We are the only world that has fallen. And so for all creation, even those unfallen worlds out there, this is the issue. This is the issue that has consumed heaven for thousands of years, the sin issue. And so we got to understand it rightly or we will be lost. We will be deceived. We will think we're going on the road to the kingdom when we are actually on a road into Babylon, into hell, to suffer the second death. But God has promised those who are faithful, those who look up to him, uh, uh, will increase in knowledge and light unto God. Proverbs 4 and verse 18. Notice what it says. But the path of the just, that's God's people, the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. And so there's a progression, you see. There's a, a, a increasing knowledge of truth and grace and faith as we walk with Jesus day by day. That's why he says, more and more unto the perfect day. Unto that day we reach that day of perfection and have a character that reflects perfectly the character of Christ. And so, and this isn't the only scripture. The Bible is full of scriptures that tell us that the light for God's people increases until that day. And the last generation, friends, we need to realize that, and this is the generation that we are living in, the last generation will have more light than any previous generation. Wouldn't you agree with that? Isn't that what the Bible tells us? Makes sense, doesn't it? When we know uh, a prophecy, we understand end-time events. So the last generation, again, that generation that we belong to, will have the right understanding about the sin issue and how one can be like Jesus and overcome all the temptations of the devil and the natural inclinations of the heart, just as Jesus did. That's what he came to to show us. He came to show us how to live that victorious life. And this reminds me of a nice quote I read, which says, it's, it's from Upward Look, Upward Look, page 202. It says, This very day the Lord desires us to reach a higher standard than we have ever reached in the past. She says, This very day. This is the only day we have right now, isn't it? We don't have tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. We have today. So she says, this very day, the Lord desires us to reach a higher standard than we have ever reached in the past. Day by day, we are to advance upward, ever upward, until it can be said of us as a people, ye are complete in him. And that's the goal that God has set for each and every one of us ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. He wants to bring us back to that total life of righteousness that they had. And Jesus proved that it is very possible in a body like ours after thousands of years of hereditary tendencies toward evil. Now, spiritual light, people say, well, what is that, Pastor Joel? Spiritual light is equivalent to truth. And when we receive light or we receive truth, we have more responsibilities as well to live up to that light and to share that light with others. So not only do we have more light today, but we also have more responsibilities for that light that we have today. And we've learned in this series that as the Holy Spirit leads us as individuals and as a church, as a people, into the truth concerning the sin issue, that there will be a separation. There's going to be a separation. If we choose to separate from sin and find that our brethren, uh, our family, even our church decide not to, what do we decide to do? And it is a decision for eternity, is it not? And when we come to the light about sin and we see that our brethren and church uh, are rejecting that light and choosing, even though they, they don't realize it, but they're choosing a pathway to Babylon and not to God's kingdom, as we studied last time we were together, 
What are we to do? Right? What is to be our reaction and decision when we come to a line in the sand like that? Well, I hope through this series that there, uh, you know, we've seen the answers to questions like that. And so I'd like to begin our study here this morning in the book of Luke chapter 12. Now, we're going to look at verses 47 and 48, and, and, and Jesus is talking here about the time when probation is going to close and he's going to return to this world. So we look at Luke 12, verse 47. It says, And that servant... Now pay close attention to what Jesus is saying here, friends. He says, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What is, you know, when you get into the Gospels and you read about what Jesus is, you know, uh, teaching in these parables and such, what he is trying to convey to us are principles of righteousness. So what is the principle here by what he's saying? He's saying, the more truth that I understand, the more responsibility I have to the Lord to obey that truth. You see, God measures a person's accountability by their knowledge of duty, including truth that they, they might have known but did not avail themselves to. And if we have a knowledge of our duty before God, we are to be preparing, you see, for the time of his appearing so we can meet him in peace. Do you realize, friends, think of it this way. Maybe, you know, I'm kind of a history buff and uh, some people aren't. <laughs> they may not know. But do you realize before printing was invented, the common people never had a Bible? They didn't have the word of God. They couldn't afford it. Even when it first started out, you had to be very wealthy to own a Bible. There were scholars at that time that went to libraries to study the Bible. They would lock the Bible up in the church so people wouldn't take it. Isn't that an interesting thought? <laughs> Somebody might steal the Bible. Actually, they wanted to have full control of the Bible at that time, but that's another story. But, uh, you know, I mean, think of Martin Luther. Martin Luther didn't own a Bible. He went to a library to read the Bible. Isn't it interesting when you think about that, that the art of printing was invented just in time for the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther? And that was no accident, I'll tell you that. But as a result of printing and the Protestant Reformation, almost everybody in the world can have a Bible. Today, all over the world, friends, people have access to the Bible especially through the Internet. But people have access to the Bible. There are still some pockets around the world where uh, Bibles are you know, mailed, and we've sent out Bibles uh, as well to some people. They're, they're still in some areas poor people who can't afford a Bible, and they can't, don't have access to the Internet or anything like that. You know, but pretty much around the world, people have access to the Bible. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we have more knowledge of our duty towards God and more responsibilities because of this than people who lived 600 years ago? Yes, we have a lot more responsibility. What happens when we don't live up to that responsibility? Well, we'll get bogged down in our walk with the Lord. Eventually, we'll start walking back the way we had come. And the devil will have us thinking, though, see, that we are still walking with the Lord. This is why Paul says, you know, that there's some that are preach a, a false Christ. They preach a different gospel. This is what he's talking about. But we'll start walking backwards. We'll get to a point where we may call good evil and evil good. We'll be on the road to Babylon and the mark of the beast while believing we are on the road to Zion, the city of God. And so, friends, I encourage you. And you know that I do. 
I encourage you always, we must come to a right understanding about where we personally are in our walk with Christ. Are we striving to overcome sin or are we just generalizing our sins and hoping for the best? Thinking we are separated from Babylon and that's good enough. Well, let me tell you, the Bible says it's not good enough just to separate from Babylon. It's not. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now, if it was okay just to come out of Babylon, he would have stopped there. But see, that's not the goal, just to separate from a fallen organization and to separate from evil. You know, that indicates there's something inside us that we have to battle against too, see? So we can't just physically separate and and maybe spiritually separate. We also have to understand our own selves. Because he says, Wherefore, come out from among them, be separate, say the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Then I will receive you, he says, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, the historical reference of this is the departure of captive Israelites from ancient Babylon, which Paul here, he's referring to as an illustration of the separation of God's people from the world and from spiritual Babylon. You know, you read about in Revelation 18.4. You see, upon their return from captivity, the Jews were charged not to carry back with them anything savoring of pagan idolatry. And so, similarly, spiritual Israel is charged not to touch the unclean thing. So we're not only to separate from Babylon, but we must give up all the unclean things of Babylon as well. Paul says again, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, he says that we are to examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Well, why do I have to do that? I separated from Babylon. Well, it's not just separating from Babylon. And have you really separated from Babylon? Physically, you may not be there, but mentally and spiritually, you may still be living there. So he says, we are to examine ourselves, whether we are in the faith. Prove your own selves, he says. Test yourselves. Know ye not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Well, how do we do that, Pastor Joel? What do we measure ourselves against to see if we are being captured by Babylon or marching to Zion? You see, the decisions, friends, that we we make will either prepare us and others for the mark of the beast or the seal of God. And so this subject, this sin issue, and this is why I bring it to you. I don't bring just any issue to the beloved. This issue is important to understand. It is the vital issue. It is the issue. When you boil it all down, the sin issue. How does God deal with the sin issue? Now, let me share a quote about this that may clear up what I mean and what I'm saying here this morning. This is from a Signs of the Times article that was written on March 11, 1897. Well, it was published on that day. Notice this. I'm going to spend a little time on this because it's just profound. And I think it's meant for us right now, this day, for all of us who may be struggling, for all of us anyway, especially those that we, we, these sins that we may be struggling with and such. We need to understand our condition, friends, our individual condition. Okay? She says, many apologize for their spiritual weakness, for their outbursts of passion for the lack of love they show their brethren and sisters. They feel a sense of estrangement from God, a realization of their bondage to self and sin, but their desire to do God's will is based upon their own inclination, not upon the deep inward conviction of the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you find yourself in this kind of a condition? Do you feel as though you're estranged from God at times? Maybe not always, but at times. Like there's no conviction about certain sins in your life? If so, what could be causing that? Well, friends, again, I'll tell you, it has to do with the sin issue and how we personally and as a people choose to deal with it. Are we headed to Babylon or Zion? That's the question for each one of us. Which way are we headed here? 
She goes on, she says, they believe that the law of God is binding. Well, that's interesting. Who does that rule out? That rules out most of Christendom because they say the law isn't binding, right? So she's talking about Bible-believing Christians here, Adventists, for the main point, most part. They believe that the law of God is binding, she says, but they do not with the eager interest of judgment-bound souls, compare their actions with that law. That's a profound statement and to the point for those of us who live today. And Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 20, he says, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what's she saying here? They believe that the law of God is binding but they don't compare their actions with that law. So she's describing a condition where we understand, at least to some degree, what sin is. And we agree that God's law is binding upon us, but we don't compare our own actions against that law. And so we may have separated uh, ourselves from Babylon, but still hang on to the, you know, those darling delicious sins in our life. The one pastor used to call them. Those darling delicious sins that we just don't want to give up. We don't compare ourselves to the standard of God's law in a serious way. You know, when you look in the Bible, especially the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were in just such a condition as that, weren't they? It is the condition of an unconverted heart for one reason or another. Either they were never fully converted, as Ellen White has put it at times, not fully converted, or they've lost their first love and they've fallen back. Notice this, she goes on. She says, they admit that God should be worshipped and loved supremely, but God is not in all their thoughts. They believe that the precepts which enjoin love to others should be observed but they treat their associates with cold indifference and sometimes with injustice. Thus they walk away, notice this, she says, thus they walk away from the path of willing obedience. It's remarkable. And I see a lot of this kind of behavior among the remnant of God. This is who's being spoken to. Not all the other Christians. They don't believe God's law is binding. But I see a lot of this among God's remnant of today. They have all the Bible knowledge, but something is missing. So they walk away. Why do they walk away from the path of willing obedience? Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean they leave the professed church. Well, some do, but this doesn't mean that's not what she's talking about here. It's saying that they walk away from willing obedience to God's law. They try to keep the law because they know it's binding, remember? They know it's binding, but their heart's not in it. So it's only a form of godliness. Remember Paul talking about that? He says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Having a form of godliness, that is, the external characteristics of religion, such as, well, I mean, you know, church attendance, church gifts, personal service for the church. They do all those things. It's very interesting. When we were at uh, away last week and we were at uh, in Kentucky at Deb's Cousins, we got into kind of a conversation. And, and this was the answer to a question that I was asked and and it wasn't agreed to. The question was, well, you know, people believe they're doing all these things and I and yet they're not they're not in a condition, a saved condition, but they believe they are. And I'm like, that's the power of deception. Jesus said, hey, we came and did all these things in your name, you know. And, and what was it that Christ said? Depart from me, ye that do iniquity. You see, this is a description of these same people. They believe the law is binding, but it's not binding to them. See? Because they've walked away from willing obedience to it. 
And so they have the, all the external characteristics of religion. They go to church every Sabbath. They pay tithes and offerings. They do work in community services. They feed the poor. They do all these things in Jesus' name, right? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. And so what Paul's saying is, they have all these forms of godliness. To the outside, we see, that, oh, what a wonderful Christian. But God knows the heart. And, and the truth is that they deny the power of God, which cooperates with the will of man for the eradication of all the sinful tendencies, where you can overcome, you can obey God's law, and willfully so. And Paul says, you remember this? These kinds of people, he says, turn away. Here again, it's a separation, isn't it? Meaning separate yourself from them as their influence could lead you to the evil practices, well, that he mentioned to Timothy in the first four verses. So why does this happen? Why do they walk away from willing obedience? Let's go back to the Signs of the Times article, March 11th, 1897. She says, they do not carry the work of repentance far enough. They don't go far enough. They have not allowed God to give them a complete victory over that sin or sins. They have not turned completely around to head towards God. They have an inclination to do it, but they never really decide and work with God to put it away. And as she says, they do not carry the work of repentance far enough. She goes on, the sense of their wrong should lead them to seek God most earnestly for power to reveal Christ by kindness and forbearance. Many spasmodic efforts, I find it interesting she uses the word spasmodic. But she says, many spasmodic efforts to uh, do not crucify self. Oh, excuse me, I missed this sentence there. Many spasmodic efforts to reform are made, but those who make these efforts do not crucify self. There you go. They do not give themselves entirely into the hands of Christ, seeking for divine power to do his will. They are not willing to be molded after the divine similitude. And so, friends, I mean, the only way to have victory over sin is to crucify ourselves and let Jesus have complete control of our life to mold it into his character, which is perfect righteousness. Otherwise, well, friends, we're just wasting time. And we're lying to ourselves that we're headed to Zion. Let me finish up this article. She says, in a general way, they acknowledge their imperfections. Now pay attention to that. She says how? In a general way, and this is the point I'm trying to get to. You almost titled entitled this message, Generalizing Sin, because that's what it is. And that's a big problem among us as a people. We generalize it. We don't get down to the nitty-gritty and right to the point of what sin we're committing and need to get out of our life. We generalize. And so she says this, in a general way, they acknowledge their imperfections, but the particular sins are not given up. We have done the things we ought not to have done, they say, and have left undone the things we ought to have done. But their acts of selfishness, so offensive to God, are not seen in the light of his law. Full contrition is not expressed for the victories that self has gained. The enemy is willing that these spasmodic efforts should be made for those who make them engage in no decided warfare against evil. Notice how she describes this process. She says, A soothing plaster, as it were, is placed over their minds, and in self-sufficiency they make a fresh start to do the will of God. But a general conviction of sin is not reformative. You get that? A general conviction of sin is not reformative. It's not going to change you. We may have a vague, disagreeable sense of imperfection, but this will avail us nothing unless, and here's what she said, 
we make a decided effort to obtain the victory over sin. And so you've got to get into the particulars, you see. If we wish to cooperate with Christ, to overcome as he overcame, we must, in his strength, make the most determined resistance against self and selfishness. It takes work. <laughs> We've got to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what the Bible tells us. And so let us see our own selves clearly, friends, and never generalize our condition. We must specifically compare our thoughts, our words, our actions against the law of God and see where we come short of the mark. And then we can go to God for divine help to overcome. And God has promised to help us to have victory. So let's not shy away from this process. Self wants us to, but we have to have a determined effort. And God's not the author of confusion, is he? The devil is, and he'll trick you, you see, in this process. Like she says, he'll tell you, just put a plaster over it, right? And, and if you keep doing that with these besetting sins that you have in your life, pretty soon you're going to get to the point where you're going to be calling evil good and good evil. You're going to be calling darkness light and light darkness, or be completely indifferent to it all. And this is the condition that, that uh, Ellen White was describing here, a condition that will generalize sin to the point that we walk away from willing obedience to God's law. And our only safeguard... <coughs> our only safeguard is to have implicit faith in Jesus, who is the Word of God. Isn't that true? And so we must follow that Word no matter where it leads us. For truth is always moving us forward, and those who follow Jesus progress with Him. Amen? Can you see that, beloved? They're going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And those who willingly obey God will be different. They're going to be different than those who profess to even though they profess to as well. And so there's a dividing line that is in God's church. And there's always been a dividing line. Because in this world, since the devil rebelled in heaven and since Adam and Eve fell, we are in a situation where there are people who profess things that are not true. In God's church. I mean, the devil and his angels profess things that are not true. Well, Pastor Joel, that's easy to understand. It's the devil and his angels, <laughs> right? Well, so do human beings. And so those human beings that do that, they are the devil's agents. And if you are one of God's children, on the other hand, you're not going to make a profession that's not true because then you're breaking the ninth commandment. You're bearing a false witness. God's children don't ever make a profession that's not true. And if you do, we do have an advocate with the Father. But God's children don't do that. But the devil's children do. And the devil has been doing this for thousands of years. And the devil brings his agent, agents, you see, into God's church. And they make a profession of something that's not true. So now you have this group of people together, and it's called God's church. Some of them are true. Some of them are not true. And you can't tell for sure which is which because they all make the same profession. And this is what the prophet describes as the church militant. You see, and it's made up of the wheat of God, those who live the profession, but it's also made up of the tares. Remember, the tares were sown by the enemy, right? It's made up of the tares, or you can call them foolish virgins, or you can call them Laodiceans. However, in this group, this church militant, it does not consist of open sinners, for God has principles we're to follow to deal with open sin in the church, and we covered that in a previous study. But it, it, it's God that draws the dividing line in the church militant. Let me share this with you. It's another Signs of the Times article. This article was entitled, A Test of Faith, June 30th, 1881. Notice, God is honored not so much by the great number as by the character of those who serve him. He appreciates moral worth. He draws the dividing line between those who bear his name by profession and those who, whose character shows them to be his children. Those who have the fear of God will listen to his counsels and obey them. They will not be content with spurious theories nor build upon false principles to secure the friendship of the world. Yet, at the same time, 
they will cherish and exemplify those virtues that promote the happiness of the family, the church, and the community. So you see, a converted heart has a love of God and compassion in him. He's not like the Pharisee. Just self, 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 and have the, the form of godliness and doing all the ritual things. A cold formalism, as the prophet has said. And so when we look at the church militant, on one side of the dividing line, there are people who make the profession, but their profession is not true. And on the other side of the dividing line is the true people of God, the true followers of God that, that are lifting up the banner of Christ. And they are the people, they make the profession too, don't misunderstand, but their profession is lived out in their life. As John says in 1 John four seventeen, he says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. John's saying we can be like Jesus in this world right now. When our love is made perfect, and that's what, what God is trying to do for each and every one of us, is to, to bring the love, his love into our hearts so much and make it so full and make it so perfect in our life that we reflect Jesus perfectly in character. And that's what shows that they are God's children. Their character shows that they are God's children. They obey the Lord and are thus commandment keepers as Revelation 14, 12 says, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, when I say lifting up the banner of Christ, I mean that we are, are to be a visible reflection of Christ to all the world around us. And so if you and your church are members of God's government and family, let's say, you will reflect the character traits of your leader, who is Jesus Christ. From Councils to Writers and Editors, page 102, notice this. A banner has been placed in our hands, upon which is inscribed, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Notice what she says here. She says, This is a distinct separating message. It's a separating message. A message that is to give no uncertain sound, she says. It is to lead the people away from the broken cisterns that contain no water to the fountain of living waters, which is Jesus Christ. And so if your your church, your organization is not a member of God's government or family, the members will still reflect the character traits of its leader. But their leader in that case is the Antichrist. Now remember that Satan will appear. The Bible tells us as an angel of light. And many will be deceived. In fact, prophecy tells us the whole world will be deceived. Not God's people. And they'll be deceived because they don't, they don't follow the true light. The word. They don't follow Jesus Christ. And so they cannot discern this deception of the devil. And thus they call evil good and good evil. See? And when you walk away from willing obedience to God. Friends, let me tell you this. When you walk away from willing obedience to God, you're, you're just like Lucifer did the same thing thousands of years ago. He did the exact same thing. And a very important distinction that I want to make clear is that the church of God does not war against those who are holding up the banner of Christ. It's a very profound distinction we've got to understand. It's all based on Genesis 3.15. God's going to place an enmity there, you see. There's war. There's a reason the old great controversy was called cosmic conflict because there's a war going on. It is a great controversy between Satan and his angels and, and uh, Christ and his angels between the forces of good and evil. And any religious organization that persecutes those who are keeping the commandments and have the faith of Jesus, those that are holding up the banner of Christ is not the church of Christ, but is the church of Antichrist. Notice this, Signs of the Times article that was entitled, Getting Ready for the Testing Time. Well, that must be speaking to us, right? April 22nd, 1889. 
Says the prophet, the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice what she says. She says, we can see from this scripture that it is not the true church of God that makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Any religious organization or religious group that makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus is not the true church. In fact, you can even call that religious organization spiritual Babylon because it is spiritual Babylon that wars with the true church. Because remember, in our previous studies, there are only two churches and they're in conflict. Like I said, according to Genesis 3.15, there's a natural enmity. So why Jesus talks about being a friend with the world is, is an enmity with God. You see, the true church can never be Babylon. Some people say, oh, you're calling the church Babylon. No, you don't understand who and what the church is. The true church can never be Babylon for Babylon wars against the true church. However, a church can walk away from willing obedience from God's law and become a member of Babylon, still professing to be the true church and do all the outward works. You see what I'm saying? Babylon consists of fallen churches. And they will war against God's true church. This is an identifier, you see. Remember this definition about spiritual Babylon. It's from the Great Controversy, page 382. The message of Revelation 14 announcing the fall of Babylon must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become corrupt. How do you know that a religious body, you know, a church organization is pure? when it's in line with all the character traits of Christ that we find in God's Word. It reflects the character traits of its leader, Jesus Christ. It hates sin, as God hates sin. How do you know when a religious body is no longer pure? And this is the question that, that, that many have trouble with. They become very uncomfortable because it is really quite simple to see whether a religious body is pure or not based upon God's Word. But we usually don't like to admit, do we, friends, that our religious organization is impure any more than we like to admit our own impurity. We answer the question in much the same way that we reason away our sins. We come up with excuses or we, we generalize sins as individuals. And in the church, we generalize our sins. We try to find a grand exception, right, as to why our sin is a different kind of sin. And, and God understands that. So he doesn't hold it against us. I mean, after all, we are the chosen people, the apple of his eye, right? And so there becomes a grand exception in our case, we tell ourselves. And for the religious body that we belong to. And we twist scriptures in an attempt to justify our impurity. I mean, I actually had Leaders in the Advent movement tell me that there is apostasy in their church, but their church is not an apostasy. Good grief, friends. <laughs> evil good and good evil comes to my mind when I hear such things. Any excuses made to reflect away direct conviction, you see. Sins are generalized to the point that people walk away from obedience to God's law. And that's where we find the professed church today. God has given us in his holy Bible, friends, a definition of sin and says that his people will hate sin as he does. It says that his people are those who keep his commandments. It says that his people love righteousness and will follow Jesus wherever he goes. And it is by this word that we will know if and when a religious body that once reflected his traits no longer does so and has become corrupt. And friends, it's really just that simple. Discerning it is actually the simple part. Accepting it is the hard part. And so I get questions, you know, we talk about that subject, I get questions about, well, where's the prophecy that says the church is going to fall? We're, we don't need that. We don't need a prophecy. To, we don't need a thus saith the Lord, this church has fallen. We just need to see Jesus Christ perfectly with perfect discernment that's given us from the Holy Spirit. And we'll know. If they're not in line with what God says and they don't follow Jesus, 
They may do all the things in his name, but they're workers of iniquity because they have walked away from willing obedience to his law. And so we're told that's not the true church of God that makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Christ. Like I said, the Bible declares that in Genesis 3.15. You look at Revelation 12. The end time prophet declares it to be true as well. And so anyone who makes war against those who are lifting up the banner of Christ, those who are taking the three angels' messages to all the world, is not a true follower of Christ, friends. You could call it a litmus, litmus test. Now, that's about as close as we can get as human beings because we can't read the heart. But we can see the fruit. And so we must accept that there are many who profess to lift up the banner, but in actuality war against it. And we must make more decided efforts to hold up the banner now. Amen? Here's another quote from Councils on Health, page 357. The third angel's message, embracing the messages of the first and second angels, is the message for this time. We are to raise aloft the banner on which is inscribed the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. The world is soon to meet the great lawgiver over his broken law. This is not the time to put out of sight the great issues before us. God calls upon his people to magnify the law and make it honorable. How do you make it honorable? You live it by willing obedience. I'll tell you, friends, it's an amazing thing to witness some of the arguments against separating from sin and apostasy. In actuality, such things are, are a call to lower the banner of Christ. Some of the reasoning from Adventists can be compared, I'll tell you, to arguments given by every fallen church in Babylon. Same argument against pointing out sin and apostasy is given for the sake of unity. That's a big thing today. That's the push for a one-world church. Let's put aside our differences and come together in unity. I mean, just recently, friends, I read, and I don't know how recent this happened, But just recently I read that, that Mark Finley has made an appeal for the sake of church unity, again, church unity, that we should not be against sharing that changed and watered-down version of the great controversy. Have you read that? Have you heard his appeal? It's remarkable. And this is the same exact type of appeal the Catholic Church makes to all the churches in order to form a one-world church. It's an appeal to lower the banner of Christ. But God's people will never give up the truth. They will always be lifting up the banner of their Savior. Notice what it says. The Great Controversy, page 51. Romanists have persisted in bringing against Protestants the charge of heresy and willful separation from the true church. But these accusations apply rather to themselves. Why? She says, They are the ones who laid down the banner of Christ and departed from the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. It's rather amazing to look back in history and see the same mistakes made over and over through time by God's church. I mean, we just read that, that Rome departed from the faith, and yet history shows that Rome kept the church organization, didn't they? Rome had control of it. Rome kept the money, the tithes, the offerings. Rome kept all the buildings, you know, the schools, the hospitals. They kept almost all the pastors. And yet, they're the ones that willfully separated from the true church. Think about that. History being repeated. And here's why they are the ones that separate from the true church. She says, they are the ones who, one, laid down the banner of Christ. They laid down the banner of Christ. Well, what is the banner of Christ? The banner of Christ is the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Christ and all his apostles taught Christians to keep the commandments of God through the faith of Jesus Christ by the power that Jesus will give you to be an overcomer. That's what the apostolic church was all about. But the Romanists laid down that banner They've taught that you cannot keep the commandments. And this doctrine of the devil has gone all over the world. 
and the vast majority of Christians believe it today. Do the best you can, they'll say, but you're going to have to go on and sin. Then you have to go to confession, you see, and get your sins forgiven. And if you keep your sins confessed, then you'll be saved. This is called a new theology, though it's an old lie. That's very prevalent teaching in the Seventh-day Adventist Church of today. Very sad to say. Now, where in the Bible is that message at? You won't find it. Christ says in Revelation that it's the, the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What it really is, is the gospel according to the Antichrist, isn't it? You see, the Bible teaches that not only must I confess my sins to receive pardon, but I must also overcome my sins through the grace of Christ. And that's why in the book of Revelation, especially over and over again, it's stated that the person that inherits eternal life will be the person that overcomes sin, the person that overcomes, the overcomer. You read Revelation 2 and 3, you know, the messages to the seven churches. In every case, it's, it's the one that overcomes who, who inherits eternal life. And it's very plain. So Rome did two things. They separated from the true church in two ways. First, they laid down the banner of Christ. That is the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and the belief that you can overcome sin. And second... They departed from the faith once delivered to the saints. Well, Pastor, what is the faith that was once delivered to the saints? Well, friends, before Jesus left, he gave charge to his apostles. He gave them something to do. He gave them a commission. And we read it in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus told them to go into the entire world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice this last part. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. This is what Jesus said. Have you ever studied through that text very carefully? Jesus said that, that we are to teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And so in verse 20, you notice that human teaching, human opinions is shut out of the church of God. Because Jesus is saying, you're to teach what I've taught you. But Rome, you see, moved away from the Bible as an absolute authority. They moved to the church fathers and their opinions, just like the Jews had done with all the rabbis. And then the Church of Rome went to the Pope. He's the final authority in all Christian matters. And so when you start to teach something from a different source than what is found in the inspired writings, what is that called? That is departing from the faith that was once delivered to the saints, beloved. Notice this quote from a review in Herald, June 28, 1887. While professing to be children of God, they are to all intents and purposes children of the wicked one, for they act out his spirit and do his will. It is mutual strife in the place of mutual love that if persisted in, <clears throat> in will prove their common ruin. Professed Christian churches are often ruined by their own unchristian course toward one another. Isn't that the truth? So it's not enough to make a profession. It's not enough, like I said earlier, it's not enough to just physically remove yourself from Babylon. If we profess to be the children of God while, while we are to all intents and purposes uh, the children of the devil, we're not going to be in the church triumphant. And as we've learned before, there comes a time when separation from apostasy becomes an absolute duty. And those who keep the commandments will have a hatred for sin and its results. And the fallen church generalizes sin, you see, so it'll come to a head at some point between the two. And we know that because we're told about Armageddon. We're told about the final scenes in this great conflict. And I've said it before, but it bears repeating that some people think that, that you need to stay with the religious organization no matter what happens in it. That that happened in the Hebrew church. 
Thousands were destroyed, friends, in the destruction of Jerusalem because they generalized the sin issue, which led to a misunderstanding of who and what the church is. They didn't progress with the truth of God, and they perished because they accepted darkness rather than light. That happened to the Roman church. Millions and millions of people said, you know, we're going to stay here. Even though there is open sin and apostasy, we're going to stay here and let the Lord take out all the tares and the foolish virgins and the Laodiceans. You know, mistakenly thinking that these are open sinners, of which they deny themselves to be a part of. You see, they generalize sin. They ended up losing their eternal life. But there comes a time, and I believe for Adventists that arrived some time ago, that you must remove yourself from its fallen organization filled with open sinners and erroneous teachings against the pillars of the faith, especially the three angels' messages. Now let me tell you something, friends, and it's not easy for me to say. I hate it. How a church could be so mighty and, and possessed of the Spirit of God and fallen so far is just incredible. But the General Conference is not just indifferent to open sinners, which is bad enough, but they actually promote sin by the, number one, for the acceptance of the LBGT members, even into leadership positions now. It's remarkable how history is repeating itself. To our shame. And I've shared this quote with you before. Signs of the Times, November 8, 1899. Paul writes to the Romans, If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. But there is a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle. Separation then becomes an absolute duty. Let me put it to you in the context of my sermon today. There is a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle, without lowering the banner of Jesus Christ. They want you to lower the banner. Well, then you have to separate. It becomes an absolute duty. So the people that follow Jesus will not be the people that stay and compromise principle when there's an absolute duty to separate from apostasy and keep lifting up the banner of Christ. The decision, my friends, is not so much to separate from a church organization, but to separate from sin. Because God is dealing with the sin issue. The sin problem. This is how he's told us to, that we are to deal with it. Because it's how he's dealing with it. I mean, when, when the devil and his angels burn up in that lake of fire and all the wicked, that's a final separation <laughs> between sin and righteousness forever. Praise God for that. There is a day that it will end. And so when you come to the right knowledge concerning this sin issue and choose to separate from it, you will be following Jesus wherever he leads, beloved. And by his spirit, you will lift up the banner in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions. You will be a living testimony written by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, to the world, it'll appear that we who profess and do keep the commandments of God are all alone. You know, offshoot radicals, alarmists, kooks and nuts. But they're looking through a glass dimly, you see. Well, we see the light. So don't be discouraged by any of this, for Jesus came to give us victory over sins, friends. Let me share this with you as I, I close up. Signs of the Times, June 10th, 1889. Living faith makes itself manifest by exhibiting a spirit of sacrifice and devotion in the cause of God. Those who possess genuine faith stand under the banner of Prince Emmanuel and wage a successful warfare against the powers of darkness. They stand ready to do whatsoever the captain of their salvation commands. They are enabled through the grace of Christ to be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. There is a great work for us to do if we would inherit eternal life. We are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live a life of righteousness. Says the word of God, faith without works is dead. We are to fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, 
deny self, take up the cross, follow daily in the footsteps of our Redeemer. We are exhorted to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he bids us follow him. If we make him our example, we shall not fail of an entrance into his everlasting kingdom. There is a cross to be lifted if we follow Christ. We shall find that there is a high wall to be scaled, a ladder to be climbed before we can enter the eternal city. But as we realize our own inefficiency and cry for divine power, the voice of Jesus will come to us saying, take hold of my strength. We can't do it ourselves, friends. We just can't. We have to cry for divine help and Jesus will never turn away. He says, take hold of my strength. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The strength of Jesus will be imparted to every soul who strives lawfully for the mastery. All may be overcomers. See, friends, God's true people have his attributes, his characteristics. They war against sin and error. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, not just profess to. They hold up the banner of Christ, though the heavens fall. And they do it through the strength of Jesus, their King. And the time is coming when each of us will be faced with the final test of faith, friends. Will we remain faithful, be seen to the very end, lifting up the banner of Christ? quote from John 14, 6. We come to a full understanding that what Jesus says is true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Friends, will you progress with the truth? Will you progress with Jesus? Or will you hold up a different banner? Will you war against him in the person of his followers, those who exemplify his character traits? Time's running out. The question for each one of us that we have to deal with as individuals because we will stand before Jesus Christ one day is which banner will we hold up? I hope and pray it is the banner of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much again for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity to study from your holy word and from inspired writings. We pray, Father, for double portions, triple portions of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives. We cry for the strength of Jesus to come to us that we may overcome and put away these darling, delicious sins that we have, that we may be fully converted. And then when people see us, they see a righteous, loving, compassionate Christian that reminds them of Jesus Christ. Please continue to help us, Lord. We believe, help thou our unbelief. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I want to thank all those who have joined us through Facebook and YouTube. God bless each and every one of you. Check out our page. Check out our previous videos and such. Uh, follow this study. It's very important. It is the issue for us who live here in the end times. God bless you, and we'll see you again next time.